Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm so glad you're here. Today, I'm happy to share with you the fourth and final installment of my four-part conversation with the yin yoga master, Paul Greeley. The focus of this interview series is on Paul's new book, A Yogi's Guide to Chakra Meditation. And for most of the interview, we spend very little time discussing yin yoga itself. However, in this episode, we do discuss the role that yin yoga plays in the development and evolution of consciousness. So I want to thank you for your patience, and I hope you feel that your patience is rewarded in this episode. Final installment covers a range of topics from higher mystical experiences, to the relationship between growing up and waking up, to how Paul and I think about integrating yin yoga into the cultivation of a spiritual path. One thing I want to mention before beginning this episode, however, is that towards the end, Paul and I talk about something called the nada sound. The nada sound is a very high-pitched ringing in one or both of your ears. The sound is sometimes confused with tinnitus, or the sort of a ear condition that generates that sound, or different sound, that's also high-pitched and kind of annoying. But the nada sound is not that. It's just a byproduct of normal physiology, as far as I'm aware, and it can be used, like the breath, as an object of focus in meditation. In the show notes, I'll include a link to an article by a Buddhist British monk named Ajahn Amro. This is a monastic in the Thai forest tradition who I worked with many years ago when he was teaching in the United States. And he talks about in the article on how to use this sound in your meditation practice. Amro takes a more Buddhist approach towards the nada sound, and shortly you'll hear Paul present the more yogic view of the sound. And now, once again, I bring you Paul Greeley. What's interesting about, I, I found, what was actually really interesting about your model was, in, that you outlined in the book, is that most of the practices I've done have some kind of, like what I would call maybe Western projection of psychodynamic approach to them in that there's a way that uh, you're uncovering painful memories or desires or becoming aware of certain thought patterns more. And both in becoming aware of them, you, you exercise more behavioral freedom or agency in relationship to them. But it's, it's sort of an engaged analytical um, process at times. And I didn't really hear that in your book, and it's not a criticism, it's just an observation. It seems like this approach uh, doesn't go that route directly, but more goes at the, 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 the sense, the felt sense of the chakra, what's blocked in the chakra, the, the content of the chakra, but then uses tools of breath, mantra, and maybe a few other things I'm not remembering, but uses sort of specific yogic technologies to to rehabilitate the, the good functioning of that energetic center. And I, I'm curious to hear you talk about maybe some of the, the ways that there's, there's tools that you could use, like the yogic tools that you outline in the, in the book, to, to awaken and, and transmute or clear or uh, help along that, that unhealthy chakra. 
my approach, which is not a quite a direct answer to your question, so feel free to, to harangue me if I miss it, but give me this shot. You got it. My goal in my religious practices is to have a mystical experience. That's my goal. I do not believe that I need to be a perfect human being before I have that mystical experience. But I do need to pay attention to those aspects of my limitations, of my personality, my transgressions that are at the moment preventing me from this approach to a mystical experience. And that it's inevitable these things are going to come up. And as they come up, if they're blocking my ability to feel love or these other things that are talked about in the book, if it's blocking my ability, then I'm going to deal with that, Vritti. I'm going to deal with that, Sanskara. Because it's blocking my access. But I'm only going to deal with it to where I can set it aside and keep pursuing the, the, the mystical. And so I'm not going to stay and clean up every aspect of my personality that is, is lacking because that would take more time than I have left to me. I mean that literally. But I believe that you can have a mystical experience as an imperfect human being, meaning you still have karma. You're still going to have to come back. But if you can gain that mystical insight, which is going back to your story earlier, before we have nervakalpa samadhi, we're going to have savakalpa samadhi, which means we're going to have that same insight. But once we're out of the trance, it starts to slip away from us. Mm-hmm. But I believe that if you can have savakalpa samadhi, this higher experience is in a trance state, that it transforms you and that it gives you the wisdom and the strength you need to fully cleanse the, the rest of your personality, and not just this embodiment's personality, but the personalities nested in the unconscious that are waiting to come forth. Yeah. So that's my, I think, I have nothing against um, the application of, of chakra theory as a part of therapy. I, I have nothing against that. It's just that my personal motivation is I'm only going to deal with my stuff as long as it's as long as it's blocking my progress to a goal and I'm not going to stop. Let's say I'm lucky enough to purge myself of the lust or the wrath or the jealousy that was blocking me. I'm not I'm not happy now. It's, oh, good. I'm done now. Let me go out. And no, it's like, good. OK, now that's not blocking me anymore. And I can con- continue to sit and try to reach this mystical mountaintop. I think what you're getting at is, in different language is uh, two di- two levels of evolution that uh, some current teachers, I think Adyashanti, maybe Ken Wilbur, La Kelly talk about, where you can have a line of growing up, which is the line of the self-evolution of becoming a better, less toxic ego, like the ego grows up, you become less immature, more mature, kinder, better person. But then there's also the line of waking up, where, which is what you're kind of talking about with your mystical state or mystical experience, that you wake up through your true nature. Um, and what I've heard expressed is that if you're only growing up, if you're only working at the level of the ego, you will only go so far in that, in that, in that lane. To, to wait to, in order to grow up fully, you have to wake up. 
growing up fully is preconditioned on waking up to your true nature. And it's if from that level, and this is kind of the top up, top down thing that we were talking about before. Um, when you wake up, what's unresolved in the ego personality sort of unravels more or less on its own as a consequence of that shift in personality. Like the yogi doesn't have to roll up their sleeves and to, and to sort through every single issue that's unresolved. It's through a shift in identity that unwinding seems, at my sense, it just seems to start to occur on its own. And I think that, to me, that patterns in exactly what you were just saying. I think so. I think that we're in general agreement that uh, the idea of growing up is the psychological, and that's absolutely essential. You cannot skip that. And, but I do think that waking up, using that language, yeah. is, is my goal. And I will grow up as much as I need to to wake up. And I think it's a mis- I think it's a mistake to think that you can just jump to waking up. You know, these scandals that we hear endlessly in all the all the traditions is like I'm not sure what you're talking about. I am not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can bypass growing up and in and having a good restrained ethical human personality. But I don't think it's enough and I think that eventually it's like holding yourself underwater. And I think that eventually you do, and my hope is, from what I've read and I believe, is what you said, is that you, if you can have these, these tastes of mystical experience, eventually you won't give any energy to these other activities that you can see directly are causing you and others pain. Right. Um, right. At, at a certain point, there, there are no others. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so harming others is just a form of harm, self, self-harm. Um, and that's one of those absolute statements that you have to experience that eventually it becomes a mystically lived experience. So in your book, I actually was interested, uh, Paul, by the fact that I don't think I saw the words yin yoga referenced in your book on the chakras. Um, and it doesn't need to be, but what I am curious to ask you around is how, what do you see the relationship between what a yin yogi does in their physical, even pranayama practice of yin, with in term, within the, the broader framework of spiritual evolution and the, the techniques around the chakras that you, that you speak to in the book? Well, I think any form of exercise, yin included, affects the flow of chi in your body. Uh, Dr. Motoyama made a, a, a pretty good map of which meridians are influenced and controlled by which chakras. And I believe that what any form of exercise will do is help you achieve a temporary uh, equilibrium of the energy in your body. That our personalities, what we eat, how we think, habits of thought and behavior, our physical environment, as you know as an acupuncturist, mm-hmm. are distorting our chi. You know, as an acupuncturist, people come to you, they're being distorted by their environment, whether it's their work environment or it's cold outside, and they're being distorted by their inner environment, their habits of behavior and thought. And I think that what uh, the appropriate form of exercise, and sometimes yin is the appropriate form of exercise, is you get this temporary harmonization. Mm-hmm. All the damage to your environment has been wrecking on you and your own thoughts have been wrecking on you. Ah. Uh, I got an hour, two hours, three hours, six hours of that's okay. And I think what it does is it's uh, like, as you said very well, it's sort of asana is like physical pranayama. It's let's harmonize the chi the best we can with the appropriate asanas in the appropriate style. Mm -hmm. 
And now I feel great. Well, wouldn't this be the best time to sit and meditate? Your endurance is going to be good. Your mind is clear. So I believe, uh, again, I, I like your term, you know, asana uh, is a physical pranayama. You're trying to control in a good way, harmonize the flow of the chi in your body, and you will have a, a, an, an effect on that. Yeah, for, for, you know, I can see the asana being a form of pranayama, but it's also, I think of the asana is a way of refining one's awareness in that you, know, you start with the, the, the gross aspect of tracking physical sensations and noticing subtler sensations in the process. And then when you rest um, and maybe move into a sitting or a shavasana after a practice of asana, the awareness is, is not so diversified or not so scattered, not so hung up on gross manifestation and is able to actually tune into the subtler aspects of the energetics and even the felt sense of the chakras, perhaps. Yeah, I think that you're correct. I think that I short-sold asana uh, in my answer, and I think that your answer fleshes out the important part of it. Even if you're only semi-successful in harmonizing your chi, if you can first come out of your head and its abstractions into your body and feel it, and then in the rebound, feel energy moving so it's no longer an empty conception, I think that that's important. So, yeah, if I had to answer that again, I I would... I would uh, add in your part of it is that it's it makes more subtle your perceptions. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a a little bit of a nuts and bolts question, but you sort of mentioned a little bit in the book. But for someone that and this is is a prescriptive question, so you can you can swat it down, given the fact that there's so much individual vari- variation out there. But for somebody that does have sincere spiritual aspirations someone that really wants to to know fully in their own experience any of the various samadhis you mentioned, but particularly the Nirvakalpa samadhi, um, what do you see as kind of a, a bare minimum of engaged practice in terms of certain practices that they do and then also in terms of sort of time budgeting for that? Which is, I get this question a lot. It's a, I know it's a, it's a can of worms. But I'm just curious, and if you, how would you parse that type of a question? I would say that everyone is so different, and there are such different forms of personality that that it can't really be answered. I, I would just have, have to be upfront about people. I know people who, the path of karma yoga, they don't sit hardly at all, but they 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 follow a path of devotion and through service. And I have to say. That's not my path, but I, the people I've met who seem to have succeeded at that mm-hmm. certainly seem to have cleaned up their personality more than I've cleaned up my personality. And so I, I remember years ago uh, when Amrita Nanda Mai came through L.A., and by that time I had been doing, you know, SRF Kriya Yoga for six, seven, eight maybe more years, I can't remember now. Anyway, long time. So I had my set beliefs on what was, what was, uh, you know, what you needed to do to accelerate your, your spirituality. And in one little statement of a book that I read of her, she says, some people are not suited for pranayama. I was like stunned. How can you say that? Well, now that I'm older, I see that that's absolutely true. (laughs) 
my analog to that is I, you know, I grew up in Buddhism watching the breath. And then mm-hmm. I started, I moved away from the breath at some point, And then I started coming across teachers who say, actually, for many people in the beginning, breath can be problematic, which is sort of yeah. what, what you're saying with pranayama. Can be exactly. It can trigger exactly. anxiety. It can get overwhelmed. It's uh, Yeah, I think of the times I tried to share with people, you know, hey, here's what I do for meditation. Because I never, I didn't promote myself as a meditation teacher. But I'd, you know, if I got close to someone, they say, hey, you know, have you ever tried pranayama? And I remember trying to teach them how to count the inhale and hold the breath. And that you could just feel the stress coming. Yeah. And I'm going like, okay, this is not a good idea. Yeah. The, <laughs> the spiritual stress out, the spiritual stressed out pr- practitioner. Um, yeah. And so I, I believe that I believe that now that, um, you know, some of my deepest meditations are I don't use the breath to focus on a chakra. I use if you, uh, I know you don't have time to memorize the book, but one of the last techniques I describe is bija mantra practice, where you mentally chant a sound that vibrates the chakra, or at least that's the traditional belief. And, and, I, and some of my best meditations are bija mantra practice now, that I actually sort of feel controlling my breath is kind of like lifting weights. It's like it's a little heavy, it's a little crude. Yep. And so there are times now when I go like, man, this Bija Mantras is taking me in faster than, you know, Yin Pranayama or Yang Pranayama. And so I'm having, you know, years later now, I'm having the objective experience of what uh, Amritananda Mai said. I was too young to realize she wasn't saying that you didn't need to control your prana. But for some people, the breath as a way to controlling the prana isn't the way in. It's well, I wasn't. Yeah. I wasn't mature enough to have that discrimination at the time, but now I've had a lived experience of that. I can almost anticipate a time in my practice where maybe I won't do much pranayama anymore. I'll be doing my chakra practices just with thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. Uh, it reminds me, I've shifted my in my own meditation to which something you talk about in the book, and I maybe this, this is like a little bit of a, very specific question I have for you about around this. Um, it might be a little bit odd, but you talk about the the nada sound of hearing yeah. hearing specific sounds, and um, in, in a couple of traditions of Buddhism that I've done, and they actually use that too as an object of, of resting your attention on uh, to include everything. Um, and you, my subjective experience is it's always been more and stronger in my right ear. Which you're the first person I saw to write that to actually put that in language that for. Some people, it starts in the right ear. Do you, now, A, do you know what that sound is and why it is dominant in the right side? I don't know why it's dominant in the right side, but I've read it in more than one tradition. Hmm. Um, and it's been my experience as well. I don't know why that is. Um, but it is said to be a refraction of the sound of the of Om. And that each of the chakras is essentially a limitation of the great Om sound that connects all things. And um, and so the chakras have these uh, specific sort of sounds traditionally. In my experience, that's not really true. The chakras have a range of sound, but the ranges of sound are different for each chakra. And I uh, in um, I'm sensitive to that. And so when I for me, the what that is the nada sound. It is the sound that your chakras are making. And the sound that you're hearing is the dominant chakra in you. Mm. And I read in Yogananda a couple years ago in his vast commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, he said that even some of the major nadis, like Ida, Pingala, they also have sound. Hmm. 
So it can be the chakra sound that you're hearing of a chakra or maybe two chakras or more, or it can even be a dominant nadi, uh, a dominant in your language meridian. Do you get different? Do you get different pitches and volumes then? Typically, my experience is it stays at one pitch, but when I sit with it long enough, it will change. Uh-huh. But that is a long way from what I understand to be a master yogi to be able to do. A master yogi would be able to move up and down their chakras, and as they do so, the nada would change. Hmm. You're literally playing Krishna's flute. Well, for me, I can focus on any chakra, and that sound doesn't change. Right. You know, I don't have that pratyahara yet to get that deep. So the goal is that um, this was, Patanjali was very terse, as you may know. Yeah, yeah. He's incredibly terse. And he emphasized over and over, meditate on Om. Mm-hmm. That is the highest form of, that will take you to the highest form of samadhi. And then he lists other things to do. But ultimately, you, uh, my understanding of the path is, First, you hear the nada. Then the nada will become om. And these are different levels of samadhi. And you'll hear the om inside you. And then the next level of samadhi is you will hear the om coming from all around you, not limited to you. And the highest level of samadhi before nirvakalpa is your consciousness will actually travel with om. Mm. Where you used to think that I'm here and om's inside me. And then you had I'm here and Om is around me. That the the next le- the second highest level of samadhi is the sense of you leaves this body behind and travels out onto Om. And you you haven't had that experience yet. No. Okay. So we we are I've I've stretched your time I know a lot. What I'm gonna I'll, I'll recommend is why don't we say I'll give you a year. Okay. Um, we'll come have you back on the podcast if you, <laughs> but but try to nail this bit down. <laughs> All right. <laughs> We'd like to hear that, more more about if that us. happens. I will have no head from here on. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a net. Do you know about that path? No. <laughs> There's a whole, Douglas Harding is a, I think is a Scottish mystic who oh, de- right, developed right. You have whole no path head. the headless way right there like right. you have search no for head. your head yes. you will never find it. So <laughs> <laughs> that'll be me. <laughs> <laughs> From my perspective, your head looks pretty good already. So <laughs> okay, here's my head. I really appreciate. It. I've been in kind of a trance state myself just listening to you. So uh, hats off for all your contributions and everything you brought to the, the yoga culture. Um, thank you so much, Paul. I will be including show links for folks to how to find you, to find your book. Um, is there anything else you'd like me to point them to? No, I'm just happy to have the conversation, and, and I, I have to say that I'm very pleased that that um, the book spread far enough for you to read it. I really just published it thinking that my students would use it as a manual. Uh, a, a durable hardback that wouldn't be destroyed in their backpacks. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm really glad that it's already, you know, that someone across the country picked it up and read it and found it useful. So for me, uh, I was happy to have this conversation. Yeah, no, it was great. Um, well, I think you can thank Bernie Clark. Ah, okay. <laughs> He's the little little bird that uh, whispers. I owe, I owe Bernie my whole career. <laughs> <laughs> well, I owe you my whole career, too, so there you go. <laughs> anyway. All right. Thanks, Paul. Have a great night. Thanks, Josh. Thanks so much. You, too. Bye-bye. Bye.
Okay, so that concludes my four-part series with the Yin Yoga Godfather, Paul Greeley. I had a fantastic time chatting with Paul, and I hope you enjoyed this interview. If you missed any of the previous episodes, please go back to number 72. Number 72 is where the conversation with Paul begins, and you can start from there. If you're interested in practicing some of the teachings Paul shared here, please check out his great new book, A Yogi's Guide to Chakra Meditation. There's a link for you in the show notes, as well as a link to Paul's website. Going forward in the next episode, I will be beginning a series of episodes with the fascial expert, David Lasondak, and I look forward to sharing that series with you soon. Okay, that's it for today, and until I see you in the next episode, be well.